Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Sports. I'm Bruce Berglund. This week, I'm happy to welcome Nicholas Walton as guest host on the podcast. Nicholas is regular host of the podcast New Books in European Studies and New Books in African Studies. If you have not already listened to these channels of the New Books Network, I recommend them highly. Nicholas also has a great interest in sports, which is apparent from this conversation with author Paul Watson. Please enjoy the interview. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Nicholas Walton. In every program, we talk to the author of a new book that grabs our attention. And today, that book is Up Pompeii, a quest to reclaim the soul of football by leading the world's ultimate underdogs to glory, by Paul Watson. It's the remarkable story of a young Englishman who ended up the youngest soccer coach in the world after a quixotic quest to establish an international football team on the Micronesian island of Pompeii, a long, long, long way out in the Pacific Ocean. As well as being a terrific personal story, the book has much to say about the nature of modern sports, and I'm grateful to the usual host of new books in sport, Bruce Berglund, for letting me have this guest spot on his channel. I hope you enjoy the interview. I'm sat here in Westminster after a very sunny day, um, opposite Paul Watson, whose book Up Pompeii, A Quest to Reclaim the Soul of Football by Leading the World's Ultimate Underdogs to Glory, was something I just finished last night. Uh, Good afternoon, Paul. Good afternoon. Now, this is a a splendid book. Basically, it starts off with you and your friend wanting to become international footballers. We can all identify with that. Um, And then you end up becoming... Is it the world's youngest international manager? Um, yes, probably. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, the, it, but the whole thing is about where you ended up doing this, because it wasn't just a question of, uh, of being a professional coach and you know, rising up a hierarchy or anything like that. You identified a, a little island in Micronesia, and you ended up basically setting up a structure for it to play international football. Uh, it's quite a remarkable story. It reads really well as a book. But can you can you just give give us a little bit about your own background and how you actually ended up doing what then you write about in the book? Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was always um, a football crazy person and possibly to some extent slightly obsessed with football. Um, mm-hmm. And it got to a point where the one thing that was lacking between me and being a professional footballer was really any natural talent. Um, I would try incredibly hard. I, became you know fairly fit and I could run up and down all day but I just never had any real natural talent so I got to an age where I I kind of realized I wasn't going to to make it as a professional um but more than that I'd still never really challenged the idea that one day I would probably play for England um and it struck me at about the age I think I was 25 and a little bit uh and I was with my flatmate Matthew Conrad and I kind of realized 
you're not going to play for England. You, you don't get that call overnight when you're playing in the ninth division of English football. And at this point, you'd been to university, you'd come out, mm. you'd, you were working as a journalist, but you were, you were working as a journalist looking at football issues? Exactly, Correct. a football journalist uh, on Italian football. So I was kind of surrounded by football all day and all night, uh, living with someone who was also obsessed with football, um, but hitting this crisis point where I kind of realised that I didn't really want to be a football journalist, I wanted to be a footballer, but I wasn't talented enough to be a footballer. So... The idea came about, well, you know, being English was the problem. England's got such a good international structure. What if we were from a country that didn't have all the resources at, at this, their disposal? Uh, is there a country, basically, with little enough football talent that, that I could play for them? And you identified one but found out that playing for them would actually be a little bit more difficult than you'd imagine because it's very difficult to suddenly leave being English and... And yes, uh, I mean, it was quite a fanciful idea and it was, it was pretty stupid. Were you stupid. drunk? Uh, no, everyone thinks I was drunk. But um, I've got to say, honestly, it was, it was quite a sober and, and uh, arduous research mission that took us this far because we went all the way down the FIFA rankings looking at every country uh, and looking through their entire squad until we'd find one player that played for, say, Southend or Peterborough. And that would be, you know, the end of it. So uh, we did this just, for a lot. Just for teams. context, that, that's going into the, uh, into the professional leagues exactly. in Britain. So the kind of England. team that, yeah, you'd be paid a handsome wage to play for and you'd be expected to be a really serious professional. Uh, and obviously we could never get to that level. So we'd find these players all the way down the FIFA rankings and we'd go down, I think we did maybe 180 teams in this fashion until eventually <clears throat> we got to the bottom and found they still had players who were too good for us. So actually we needed to find a list of kind of entities not recognised by FIFA because mm -hmm. of geographical anomalies, um, because of political problems, place, places like Tibet, which were they to be recognised by FIFA, it would cause enormous kind of problems. Um, and in this list, at the very bottom, was an island called Pompeii in mm -hmm. the tiny little island in the Pacific. Um, and that was where we decided we might be able to play. Give us a picture of what Pompeii is like. Uh, uh, where, how far... Uh, Start off, we know the Philippines. Yes. You, you turn right at the Philippines, <laughs> you end up at Guam. That's how many thousand miles? Ooh, it's, a, it's a couple of thousand or, or so. And, um, and then you go even further into the And Pacific. then you go further. Once you're at Guam, anyone who's, who's been to Guam, you've almost got there. That's the hard bit, really. If you, you, England to Guam is not easy. But then from Guam, you go on an island hopper that goes kind of into all the little Pacific islands, like a bus service, picks up, drops off. Um, and then you have to go to Chuuk. And from Chuuk, it takes off and lands on Pompeii. And, then, and, and this is in the Federated States of Micronesia? Exactly, which are four islands. Um, it's Pompeii, it's Yap, it's Chuuk, and it's Koshrai. Mm -hmm. So four little islands that are scattered and divided by you know, thousands of miles of ocean, mm -hmm. uh, but are technically one country, uh, and Pompeii is one of those islands. And when you first turned up there, just give us a picture of... of, of what Pompeii looked like to someone from Bristol, isn't it? Yes, yeah. it didn't look much like Bristol. It didn't even look like Bath. It was <laughs> incredibly green and lush. Um, it's one of the wettest places on earth. It rains every day. It's on the equator. It's just this incredible green expanse with this beautiful blue ocean. Mm -hmm. um, but just a very odd kind of mixture of being quite run down and almost slightly third-worldy look to it. Um, but actually being fairly affluent, um, you know, I mean, it's, it's not a very poor country, but it has um, this kind of odd infrastructure that's come about through being uh, an American protectorate. So it's very Americanized. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but just unlike anywhere I'd ever been and probably unlike anywhere I ever will go. 
um, just a, a very odd place to turn up and an even odder place to turn up and look for a game of football. So just to give people a picture of what Pompeii is like, you, mm. you've, you've explained the geography of it and its American influence, but also the um, it's very expensive to get anything shipped in there, so food and everything is quite expensive. Uh, there's a lot of reliance upon things like fast food to eat, uh, a lot of spam or you know tinned meat. <laughs> um, there's a lot of uh, there's many problems with obesity as a result. It's pretty neglected in terms of international community. It has these links to the United States, but frankly, it's so far away, so few people, doesn't mm. really figure. And uh, then there's also problems such as alcoholism. People mm. are always endlessly chewing these beetle nuts as well. Yes. So, so it's not natural, you know, it's not fertile territory for what you're planning. For football, not so much, no. Um, and it is, it's a very odd environment to be in, in that, yeah, technically there is quite a strong American influence. What you also get is quite a lot of um, religious groups that have come in uh, and attempted to convert the locals to their particular religion. So you have the the Mormons, you have the the Jesuits, um, and Seventh you have Day Adventist. Seventh Day Adventists, yeah. who are the main, probably the biggest religion in terms of importance. And you have this very odd situation where, um, having spoken to some of the locals, what they basically did was accept whichever religion gave them the best gifts. Mm-hmm. So there was this very odd building blocks of religion that that one religion would give out a T-shirt at church so they'd all go to that church and then become that. The next one would give out, you know, something else. It would usually be something fairly kind of small, but it would be enough for them because on the island, if, if you give someone a T-shirt, that's, that's quite a big deal. Um, so you have this weird division of religions where people don't really know why they're of that religion. Most people aren't particularly passionate about the religion, but they are of that religion. Mm-hmm. Then you have this this complete lack of, of any real interest in developing sport or fitness or health on the island so you have no sporting community on the island as such um and no investment in sport and to make matters worse there yeah all the food's imported very little homegrown food even though there could be because there's this culture of dependence it's this this Mm. idea that you're on an island where people almost come and, and buy your allegiance but your allegiance actually isn't anything material you know america kind of bought the allegiance of the island um before that they were kind of subjugated by the japanese the germans and the spanish so their whole history has just been being under someone's sphere of influence and that's how they've got by because these people effectively pay for them to exist Mm -hmm. so there's this weird feeling that unlike in you know african countries where people know they have to to subsist to live on this island you generally don't see it that way you you will stay alive but you'll do it as cheaply as possible and and therefore there's not really much incentive to go out and and even fish even though they're in these incredibly plentiful oceans mm. it's a very odd environment and one that doesn't lend itself well to to firstly building an athletic structure because the diet's very bad uh, there's not an enormous sense of unity or national pride um in everyday life um, and and there's just not very much in the way of resources or infrastructure. So, yeah, generally you, you, you get there and you think these might actually be the problems that have prevented them creating a decent football team. Right. And now uh, one of the things that comes up... It, shall we take a step back and just say that throughout the book it's a, it, it, it really is a, quite a compelling, very well-written personal story about your own how you dealt with all the challenges and you know it 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 reads very like a film put it that way (laughs) um you know it's got all of the little twists and everything that you want but 
at its core, what you're trying to do is something that uh, has a, a, a wider message for how sport flourishes or fails to flourish in certain parts of the world. For instance, if we start talking about the, you know, if, if, if you look at the, the political bodies that run football, they're mm. endlessly talking about grassroots football, about bringing it to all the different corners of the world. And yet, stuck out here on Pompeii in the middle of Micronesia. I don't know mm. if it's in the middle. It might be on the edge. <laughs> it's, it's close enough. <laughs> I mean, there's thousands. Of, yeah. Give or take a thousand miles. Um, and yet, this was a corner of the world that really had fallen off the map of anyone who was at all bothered with trying to, to, to expand what, after all, is a pretty simple game that really just needs, you know, a couple of jumpers on the ground and, and a bit of grass. Yeah, and this was one of my biggest issues and one of my one of the issues that gave me the the biggest headache and made me very angry was the fact that yeah fifa's mission statement is you know to develop the game so that everyone can play the game that's that's all they do you know that is as an organization that is their role this is an organization that has billions of pounds at its disposal and yet in the end you're you find yourself on this little island and you think well actually football could have an amazing effect on on the people here they don't have this opportunity they seem to be enjoying it and it's going to help with you know health and with, with just everything, everything in their daily lives. Um, and so you approach FIFA and they bog you down in this world of paperwork where you have to get seven people in a room for a meeting, to have a meeting, to appoint someone to host a meeting in order just to produce a 55-page document that you then have to get notarised in order to send that to FIFA and wait for six months and then you might qualify for funding next year. You know... This this isn't a world that islanders can deal in. So therefore, we're basically saying as soon as you can act like people in an office in Switzerland in suits getting paid 30 grand a year, then you'll be entitled to get the money to drive grassroots football. Now, that suits FIFA perfectly well because these, these little islands don't have an awful lot of influence. You won't hear about them in the media. But on these islands, they don't feel like this is something that they could even get their heads around beginning to do so what you're effectively saying is that a lot of places in the world where football could have a great influence um and be a really positive factor just have absolutely no chance and you know even with people turning up from from england from america we were bogged down in this awful mire of paperwork that we were expected to produce um this is this is you know people with with degrees and people who who have lived in England and America and one of the guys we had was a lawyer and he found the paperwork difficult so how do you possibly expect islands like the Micronesian islands and there are lots of other islands in the world in a similar situation to to kind of get around this and and start developing the game it's it's a complete catch 22 basically. absolutely that's exactly the the word i was going the phrase i was going to use because without being able to to tick all these boxes and so on, then you couldn't actually establish the groundwork that you needed then to be able to f- fill out to tick all the boxes. And Pompeii had a, a couple of other things that were against it, not least of all the fact that actually it is, I mean, you mentioned Tibet earlier on, mm. the Federated States of Micronesia is actually a proper country. Yes. Uh, but it is spread over four main islands. Uh, and as we've just said, you need a plane to get between them. It's quite expensive. These people just don't have the money. Exactly. Pompeii is just one of the four principal islands. Um, so in order for FIFA to recognise a country, it would have to be the Federated States, which would mean uniting four islands, the distance between the two most extreme islands being about the equivalent to England and Hungary, the mm. cost of flights being 
you know, 500, 600 pounds per person per flight. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, this is for a football project where the entire budget was what the Olympic Committee were allowed to throw our way, which was, you know, a few thousand pounds here and there, and my overdraft. Mm-hmm. That was the extent of the budget at the time. So, yeah, it, it is an incredible problem to try and solve. It's, and I can understand why this situation exists, mm-hmm. and I can understand why other countries or other entities, people like Greenland, why they've never been allowed to compete, why Gibraltar's still not allowed to compete. I can understand that there are problems here. Mm-hmm. Um, but essentially, surely, the bigger issue is that people should be allowed to play football. People should have the right to have a football project there for them. And it sounds a little pompous, maybe, but I, I think... You sound, you sound like a different type of evangelist when you went to... I do, exactly. Everyone's got the right to football. Um, I, I, do, I do honestly think that if, if what, we're, what we're having put between people and playing football is simply whether you're representing Micronesia or Pompeii, people on the island really couldn't care less. Mm. You know, they understand the distinction between the two, but when it's a matter of whether a kid gets a chance to to do something socially and physically every day of the week or whether he has to just chew a narcotic and drink alcohol behind the stands, which is what most of our team were doing before we arrived, seems like a ridiculous situation to me. What other sports do they play there? Um, you mentioned basketball in the book. You mentioned uh, that there's a baseball diamond. Yes, uh, baseball, basketball, track and uh, field volleyball, as well. track and field and wrestling. So it's actually quite a few sports. Um, but yeah, I mean, they, they don't have a particularly great uh, sporting record. But again, Micronesia will enter athletes in the Olympics. So they'll be coming to London. Um, but... So, sorry, will any of them actually? They make will, it? yeah, because there are there are wild card slots. So oh, um, you you get a guaranteed number of athletes who will actually get to London. Um, maybe they won't medal. Uh, I'm expecting them not to. <laughs> maybe they won't medal. <laughs> but you're um, putting yourself out on a limb there. I, I know. I, don't let don't let me uh, be quoted as saying that. But um, it it is a very odd world actually. Quite a, quite a lot of um, quite a lot of countries get someone in the Olympics and then the same person probably will come year after year competing the same sport come very near the back of the pack and and you know that's a really important thing that they have that people don't mm. necessarily understand the the glory isn't isn't what's important it's the feeling that if someone knows they can get to the olympics if a country knows its representatives can get to the olympics it has a vast effect on the way people see sport mm. so when i was in micronesia i mentioned in the book i think there was an olympic committee meeting where one of the representatives uh, actually suggested that they get rid of their Olympic places and save the money to spend on sport within the country. Um, and the idea was obviously laughed by, laughed at by a lot of people, but some of the people there were saying, well, why do we bother going to an Olympic Games when we never win? Mm. And that was an attitude that had to be kind of addressed anyway because a lot of the reason why people thought football wasn't worth pursuing was because they got beaten quite badly when they first set up a football programme. So everyone thought, well, you know, we've got no chance of winning at this. What's the point? Mm. I think that that attitude of what's the point in something if you can't win is just such a terrible way to look at the world generally. Just pause for a second. There's a helicopter goes by. I think it's a news helicopter filming. Whenever there's things on it... uh, House of Parliament, uh, you always get news helicopters overhead. Oh, really? So, no, it's gone now. Oh. Um, <laughs> from what you're saying, it sounds as though 
a little bit of how the Olymp- uh, the international is the IOC, isn't mm. it? Uh, how they run things. Um, FIFA should learn from it. Exactly, and that's how I saw it because uh, we were really helped by Jim Tobin, uh, the Olympic Committee Secretary General for mm-hmm. Micronesia. He really threw him- himself into this because he believed it it was a good sport for people to be playing. Um, and he was able to access funds, and those funds went directly to the sport and the growth of the sport. Uh, he didn't have to file all this ridiculous paperwork and have four or five men in suits to, to meals in, in Pompeii. You know, he just got the funding, and mm-hmm. worked, we worked with it. And I think what FIFA need to do, in, in my opinion, is set up a, an organisation that, that they are responsible for and that is answerable to them, who help countries who have no infrastructure develop the basic infrastructure obviously they'll be closely watched and monitored because what fifa worry about is giving money to countries and it disappearing into the pocket of someone in that organization this is something that uh, <laughs> allegations suggest that this happens at all kinds of levels well yes it, not not saying that that doesn't happen within fifa nations themselves but um i can imagine they would worry about pumping money into a country and then yeah not knowing who's in charge of that but of course if they had an organization that was kind of answerable to them uh, that that specialised in basically doing what we did in Pompeii and set up uh, a country to have enough to kick on and, and mm-hmm. carry on because that was what was always the mission once once it became quite a serious project was to get local people to a stage where they were able to run this themselves because when you first see in the first few chapters of the book they're not really even able to hold a kick around very well but actually, mm. by the end, my role becomes more and more kind of supervisory until by the end, um, I'm not needed anymore. And mm-hmm. that kind of becomes clear that this thing that, that seems like a really kind of uh, a Western thing has actually become a Micronesian thing. Mm-hmm. And that if I'd stayed there, I kind of would have just been superfluous and it would have been slightly awkward. I would have been this, this Western guy who, who's telling people to do what they know how to do. Sure. So that, that for me is what FIFA need to do. They need to get countries to that stage where they're able to run with with things on a local level. Now, given the fact that you went there as a 20-something football nut with with eventually a rather large overdraft, (laughs) uh, a bit of support from your girlfriend's family, for instance, Mm. and uh, a little bit of funding that you picked up here and there, a little bit of sponsorship, but not much. This doesn't sound as though it's a particularly uh, expensive thing for people like FIFA to be able to bring football... At this basic level, but mm. at a, a level where they're they're able to compete internationally, to these places. Exactly. I mean, if you're thinking twenty or thirty thousand pounds, so that would be about say forty thousand dollars, fifty thousand dollars, fifty thousand more, fifty thousand dollars, and we're you're looking at a sum of money that um, someone like Cristiano Ronaldo makes in maybe fifteen minutes, probably. You know, and I know it's silly to yes, possibly but, to, to, uh, to parallel. But there is a point, but there is this money running through football, and and when you've got companies, don't we just know it? Yeah. Well, exactly. You've got these companies in football and sponsorship deals <clears> and agents' fees, and you, you know the sums of money you hear about in the press are so vast. And a lot of money does go through FIFA anyway. That's it. So... The money. The, there's a lot of money sitting in FIFA's bank accounts. Surely, I mean, they make on each World Cup, they make it fortune and they divide it a lot of it goes to the winners of the world cup there's a prize check that went to spain mm-hmm. that i'm not quite sure what the amount was but it was in the millions it was close to 10 million i think mm-hmm. that was basically prize money for winning the world cup now you've got a strange system there where you're basically paying the best people at football yes. to develop more 
soccer schools in Barcelona and it's lovely and it's fantastic that Barcelona yes. are able to produce these geniuses but surely there comes a point where this money's better spent perhaps on the lower rungs and mm-hmm. levelling things up a little bit. Yeah, I quite agree. Um, and the point is that uh, football is also a very, very simple game. It doesn't actually require an enormous amount of uh, facilities. Uh, you, with Pompeii, you had to remove a lot of toads from the pitch and, <laughs> and, and people did start throwing shot puts around at one point <laughs> on the same thing because they were practising for the track and field. But... Uh, uh, not that long ago, I spoke to uh, an author of a book about African football, Africa United, ah, yeah. uh, Steve uh, Bloomfield, mm. isn't it? Steve Bloomfield, Steve Bloomfield yeah. yeah. And, uh, and that was for the Africa New Books uh, Network. Um, and I just got back from Uganda myself. And, and everywhere you turn, people are playing football, you know, a little patch of mud in the corner of a, of a village on the border with DRC. And... Uh, and you know a, a, a football that's half deflated, and you get away with it. <laughs> so it's it's not a difficult thing, and yet it, it does seem to do so much good. Exactly, and I think that's that's one of the main things that the process of of uh, writing the book and the process of being in Pompeii taught me was, you know, football can have such a a positive effect and such mm-hmm. a crucial positive effect on people's lives, um, and yet most of the time. It, it seems not to, or at least if you live in this country, in England, or even if you live in most of Europe, most of what you hear about is not very positive. It's it's football being, you know, there's, there's corruption and it's it's money and it's it's whatever, it's racism scandals. Yeah. There's so much negative. Greedy players with their latest, you know, crashing their latest gold-plated car. Exactly. And, and um, at heart, football is only really kind of the, the interesting thing about football is how it relates to people and the way that it it makes communities and the way that it it becomes more than just the sport it is uh, and I felt like this project really allowed me to see something so positive and coming at it from the point of view of someone who was English and thought all he'd ever wanted was to play for the a certain team that team being Bristol City oddly but to play for you know the club he supported as a boy to play for England and I guess by extension to become famous, rich, and, you know, all the trappings that go with it. And actually to see, you know, what what you really can achieve with football hasn't got anything to do with that. Mm. And if you look at the players that you picked up, you know, it, it was a real struggle through a lot of the book, just getting mm. enough people to turn up to, uh, to, to uh, kickabouts. Even full matches was a bit of a struggle. Yeah. Um, and there's a there's a great deal of characterization in the in the book. There's so many different personalities, and mm-hmm. they've each got their own problems. Some of them are stronger than others. Some of them are better footballers than others. Some of them just are quite deeply troubled characters. And obviously, this is part of the fantastic narrative, and things all come together. I, I mean, that bit aside, um, what was the kind of impact that you saw on some of the guys that you were you were coaching? Um, um, from pretty pretty humble backgrounds as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, quite a few of them uh, had had social kind of social problems in the you know substance problems, and um, most of the the team, funnily enough, were from quite poor families and uh, didn't have anything much in in their lives, and certainly had never been encouraged to to do anything much because they they'd always thought their lives would be. Um, basically doing what their fathers had done, mm. which for a lot of them was 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 not an awful lot of, of 
positive reinforcement. You know, a lot of them had had very tough relationships with mm-hmm. with parents, with relatives. You you, um, you said that there's an enormous amount of um, of teenage pregnancy. Yes, and also uh, one of the other things that was quite striking about the book is that because is it the United States offers scholarships to go to university, a lot of them just spend ages yeah. going to university, not really getting anywhere, but just because it it pays almost as much as as getting a proper job. Exactly, yeah, you can more or less make it your job to just do course after course after course, um, and it it pays more than it would pay for you to do a nine to five job. So. It seems like a kind of loophole for the Islanders that mm. we had a player who would do a different job every week, um, a guy called Charles, and he he would um, yeah do a different job every week, and then kind of decide, nah, that's, that's not for me, it's not for me, it's too much hard work, and then next week he'd be off back to college again and be making his grant, and, and that would be fine for him, and and I think that kind of carried on and on and on until eventually he got a girl pregnant and married her, and, and at then, what age? Uh, Twenty. So, and that's you, probably a fairly typical story. Yeah, it, it is really, and I think I think you can't underestimate the the influence that, that boredom and yeah, just boredom basically has on on people on an island. I mean, you're on this very small island where there really isn't an awful lot to do, and and you're not really told that that there's anything else to, to aspire to. Uh, so, so what would you do with your life? Well, to be honest, most people would fall into alcohol and drugs because that's kind of a way to pass the time more than anything else um Mm. and it's what they saw their fathers doing and what they saw their fathers doing and um and it 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 was kind of odd to see how players changed just from knowing that the thing they wanted to do was play football and in order to do that better they had to watch what they did outside of the football field so it had this kick-on effect that you couldn't really turn up to training still chewing bit on beat on that you know you, you would fall asleep or be sick so you you had this effect that it changed the way they behaved off the field mm-hmm. and they started watching more what they what they ate where they could uh, mm-hmm. those who could afford to and so you had quite a change in them in just their attitudes to everything i mean obviously some of them were still kind of live wires and there were certain players that you see me kind of wrestling with the whole way through to just keep them on the straight and narrow mm. but others were just kind of amazed that when you give someone a purpose you know they they suddenly think well this kind of goes through my day-to-day life in every aspect of it has to be changed because I want to be as good as I can be at doing this thing this thing that I really enjoy um and there's a couple of players who just from the off can't get enough of being told to run laps you know yes <laughs> so it's an incredible well, thing Rocky or something. Uh, Rocky, Rocky yeah always used to run laps after we'd finished training and feel quite kind of put out that we'd finished uh and yeah. and roger as well would just you know had absolutely no fear of running he would run all day if you let him he'd just, just run and run and run and this idea that you know as, as an english kid the one thing we dreaded was being told to run laps so when rocky was kind of saying you know oh, do you have to go home now i want to run some laps he's just thinking it's kind of amazing to see how just having a purpose can really change mm. your attitude if you're on an island now, uh, going back to the you know the, the roots of organised sport in in England, I suppose, and Scotland in the nineteenth century, and this you know it, it fitted alongside the concept of muscular Christianity and and so on. Uh, 
but sport was it was good for the soul it was nourishment for the soul it taught you how to compete it gave you a purpose it kept you fit all those other things that you know were a diversion for gentlemen but if you were slightly lower down the social and economic scale it gave you a purpose in life that maybe you wouldn't have and you'd be dissolute uh this story sounds as though it gladdened the hearts of those guys that that set up cricket and football and rugby clubs all over britain well yeah i mean it, it kind of is it is that and um I, I alluded to it in that enormous kind of um, subtitle that goes with the title of the book. It's one of the longest I've ever heard. I'll just read it out again. A quest to reclaim the soul of football by leading the world's ultimate underdogs to glory. Yeah, I, w- on, I wasn't getting paid per word on, <laughs> on the title or anything, but it, I thought that kind of does sum it up, really, that you, you I set out... Um, in well, I said I for a way to reclaim football as something I enjoyed, not this thing that I was watching and that I, I was seeing on the TV screens in, in this country. So, in the end, that led me to a country where there appeared to be absolutely no football at all. But actually, what was created was much closer to that purity that, you, that you're talking about here of kind of the early days of football, this where you play football because you want to play football. There's, there's you know. It now seems ludicrous to us to these stories of players going on the the bus to a game with the fans, you know these kind yeah. of things. But obviously in Pompeii, if there were buses, people would have players would have gone on them with with the people coming to watch. You know, it was even just a step removed from that. You know, there's mm-hmm. just no pretension left, and there was nobody on that pitch was doing it because they thought they could make money or even yeah. get women because to be honest the women had no idea what they were doing anyway most of the time most of the people watching had no idea what was going on for the first six months yeah. they would just cheer whenever the ball went in the net um but eventually people did start to kind of take more of an interest but mm-hmm. but yeah basically nobody did that because they thought anything could come of it they did it because they enjoyed doing it you mentioned earlier and I'm very aware of this because uh, uh, your team is Bristol City. Yes. Not a particularly good game, uh, good team. Uh, ironically, you your team play my team tomorrow, Middlesbrough. Ah, Middlesbrough. Uh, so, yeah. so we we both support what can probably most optimistically be called unfashionable teams. And and do you, do, this leads me to something that follows on from what we've just been saying. Do do you feel as though people, especially when they're younger, get a little bit carried away? with some of the, the you know with with supporting the teams that always win or thinking about doing it as a career or, or doing it simply because of all of the you know the, the star quality and money and everything that comes with it as opposed to you know just the sheer love of of humping a football around a, you know a pitch with a bunch of other guys sweating a lot maybe having a beer afterwards well, yeah I, I think what's what's odd actually and what I, I definitely noticed with with my generation of, of friends growing up was people would initially be real glory supporters so they would support four different teams a season until they chose the one that eventually won the league and people would very few people that i knew supported bristol city even mm-hmm. though i lived in bristol and grew up you know miles from a few couple of miles from the ground um but actually i think as you get a bit older i've seen a lot of people now coming back and supporting bristol city who throughout their childhood always supported manchester united and i think there's kind of a movement in the game generally that I think a lot of fans have become quite disenfranchised with with the superpowers and this kind mm. of interchangeable uh big four and basically there's there's not really massively expensive tickets massively expensive tickets not really players who don't really care which of the four they're playing for in honesty mm-hmm. um no real sense of the community being represented by that team and so I think people are almost going back to 
to smaller clubs. There was definitely a movement that mm. a lot of people started watching non-league football, um, especially with when Wimbledon reformed. I remember there was uh, quite so a lot. Just just for context, Wimbledon. Everyone knows the the, the football, uh, the, the the tennis um, tournament that happens there. But Wimbledon, this area of southwest London, there was a football team there that that went from non-league, climbed up the leagues in the 1980s, and eventually won the the FA Cup and and stuck around the top division for a few few years. And then just as it started to go on its slide, it was brought bought out by a couple of businessmen who then relocated the team in the style of an American franchise, which is pretty much unknown in, in, in football terms, and relocated it to this new town called Milton Keynes, north of London, which they thought was real ripe territory for a, for a successful com- commercial team. And just to complete the story... The original supporters, and to be quite frank, most people in in football were absolutely outraged by this, but the original supporters then set up their own team and started at the bottom of the Football League pyramid because, again, unlike the American system that that tends to operate, um, all football teams, all proper registered football teams in Britain... uh, in England are part of an enormous football pyramid. So, technically, you could kick a a ball around on a Sunday for a team that if it was enormously successful and ticked several boxes in terms of having a big enough stand, etc., could eventually rise to the top of the game. Yeah, which I think is a a beautiful thing. I'd once played about three games in Bristol for a team on on the the Downs League, which played on the Bristol Downs, the big kind of green space in the centre of Bristol. Uh, And people used to say, well, technically, this is part of the League Pyramid. If they were promoted 24 times, they would be in the Premier League. It can they probably would have had problems with the ground because you know people would occasionally walk across the pitch with their dogs and stuff. So I think <laughs> think when you get to the level of Manchester United, that might cause some problems. But, Absolutely. But that's I think that's part of the beauty of football in England that and that ability to to kind of aspire to be at the top doesn't yes. necessarily mean that you want your team to be at the top or you personally want to be at the top. Absolutely. Because there is a beauty in in just the simplicity of something going on every weekend that you go and watch Mm. and you always support your team and and this local team that replaced Wimbledon as uh, MK Dons as the franchise became known is called AFC Wimbledon that that then started climbing the pyramid now that's actually doing pretty well but it's got that kind of core local support exactly and and I think that's kind of the the point is that yeah a lot of people feel like football is is losing track of what's important and I think the, the creation of the MK Dons you know, taking nothing away from from people who support because they're Milton Keynes' team. You know, I'm sure Milton Keynes deserves a team in its own right. But you know, it, it should really, grow one. Yeah, it <laughs> felt it felt completely wrong to anyone who who supports an English team. And um, and so yeah, I think I think that feeling that um, that money has taken over has led people to come back to these these teams like um, FC United of Manchester, who are Manchester United fans who set up a team to start in the bottom of the non-leagues, you know, very low down. Uh, but they fans went to watch them instead of Manchester United when they were sold to, to the Glazers. Not an, not, not an enormous amount. No, I mean, know, not, it, we're not talking 30,000. It's not but, like everyone abandoned Manchester United. No, quite a lot of people did stay but, with them. But Manchester just to explain United. there, that's because they, they, they really took issue with the way that the, the, the buyout of the club was, was being funded by an enormous amount of debt. 
that they thought was was just exemplified how how the whole thing was just a a tool for for enormous financial transactions. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And it, I mean, money rules everything. It basically. is money ruling, and it's when people started talking about football clubs being businesses, and yeah. that just seemed like the ugliest word to hear because when you talk about football club being a business, you lose all the humanity that goes with football, all the tradition, the sentiment, and basically all the things that football fans hold dear disappear in this idea of football being a business um of course football isn't a business to the people who enjoy it you know it it, it couldn't be mm-hmm. um otherwise you'd always know what your team's results were going to be you know that that's you'd invest a certain amount of money and get a certain number of wins and that seems to be happening now more and more in the premier league with clubs like manchester city buying millions upon millions of pounds worth of players and suddenly they F- are at the funded top. by the uh, abu dhabi Yes, royal family exactly so. and and clubs like Blackburn owned by uh, an Indian group who I don't think have ever been to a football match so you get this well, I don't think that they had beforehand but they're, they're there every so often given the season that they've had these these chicken magnates the chicken magnates have had a fairly sour expression on their face but uh, exactly and I, I, it's just that feeling that yeah. football's so detached from from what it was in its amateur days um, and, and yeah I, I think that that finding something in Micronesia that actually resembled more what I loved about football um, was great, but also did make it very hard to come back and still enjoy football in this country. Even at the Bristol City type of level? <laughs> well, and I, I, I have I, you know, we're in the championship. Which yeah, is second the, division down. The second division down, yeah. But, but, but I mean, when you get to teams like Bristol City and Middlesbrough, they do tend to have much more of a, a connection to the local community. Uh, they you know, do, but it's cha- even that's changed within my lifetime. I mean, there are very few Bristol boys coming through the ranks and playing for Bristol City. Um, you know, we have David James, the former England national goalkeeper, in, in goal and being paid enormous sums to do that. You know, it's it's not it's not what I remembered when I was growing up. There's a very there's a real feeling that things are moving away from from, from where I remembered them being. Even in a decade, things have changed quite a lot. Um, and there isn't really an answer. You can't want your team to do worse so that it feels more like the kind of like grassroots football that you enjoy. But on the other hand, you do have this slight feeling that if we were to get to the very top, it would probably be an unrecognisable team. The people that could afford the tickets weren't the, certainly wouldn't be the people that used to go when I was a boy. Mm-hmm. Um, you'd have a whole different class of people going to the games. It would be it's an ugly thing. It's a very ugly thing. Um, but but this is the way that the world is going, and the world of sport, as everybody knows, there's so much money in it these days. That I mean, sure, you can find little pockets like Pompeii, and obviously then you have to work the other way around and build it up from nothing just to kind of build up the enthusiasm. Um, but are there any other sports that perhaps, you know, in, in one of your more disillusioned days, you could actually sort of say, right, I know what I'll do. I'll start supporting a rugby. I mean, Bristol's got a very good rugby tradition. Yeah, it has, actually. And, and there isn't as much money in, in, in other games. I mean, I think football mm. and probably the, you know, the big American sports are the ones where money has really, you know, determines everything. So there are other sports that you could turn to. Yeah, maybe I should just take up a minority sport. Um, but I think it's that thing of being being brought up that football is your sport and you love football. And I, I've watched my fair share of rugby and I've been to Bristol games and um, and still can enjoy that. But there's that passion in football that I think still, certainly people I know, if you, ask, if you just ask the question, who do you support? That question means, which football team do you support? Yes. If I said to someone, who do you support? And they named a rugby team there'd be a slight pause and then a kind of awkward conversation because 
you have a football team and you're you, a lot of people you're born with a football team uh, and you support them for your life and, mm. and that's how it works in my eyes so yeah I've never really quite managed to, to come to terms with other sports being replacing football I can enjoy them as distractions but when the football season's on that's what you watch mm. um, but not not as much these days um, since I've since I've finally done this incredible mission to Pompeii I've um, found it I haven't really watched much football since I've come back, funnily enough. So, <laughs> um, there you go. R- returning to Pompeii, you, you spent what seems like, is it about a year of your life? It was about 18 months. 18 months. To finish. Um, what did you leave behind? Do you think that it'll just dwindle and the toads will get back on the pitch <laughs> and the shop putter will take his, will, will practice in one corner? Or do you think that, that what you've actually set up, you'll, you'll leave a legacy that's going to have some kind of... Um, um, sustainability. Well, luckily, um, it has progressed. In fact, since I've left, it's been now, it's been probably again eighteen months since I left, um, and the league has grown. There are now more people playing. There are there's an under 14s league on Pompeii, mm-hmm. um, and the big development which has happened in the last couple of weeks is that they've actually applied for full FIFA membership. So right. they have now put the paperwork in place. Um, they haven't heard back. Obviously, I imagine that's a process that takes more like months rather than rather than days. But um, but there has been progress, and and the locals are taking the game on and, and making it their own, which mm-hmm. is well. You, you you helped establish a, a bit of a mini league there as well. There four teams you managed to, to pull together. That was one of the big things that actually we had one of the first things to do in order to get some kind of structure um, and to make sure enough people were playing was simply to set up a league. Uh, which we ambitiously called the Pompeii Premier League. Uh, there certainly wasn't any other league, but um, it was the Premier League nonetheless. And that that's the league that's kind of continued. Um, and that is hopefully where the future of the game will lie, in, mm-hmm. in the locals just continuing these leagues and continuing them until eventually FIFA do get involved, provide money for people to be trained up as coaches and referees and for the development of the pitch and, and the facilities. And from then, once people are actually being paid to do things, it really will be much, much easier. But mm-hmm. for the time being, the league continues to thrive, and it thrives on just the passion of people who aren't being paid a single penny to do this. Good to hear. And, of course, they'll have to build a statue of you at some point. <laughs> Possibly after they built a stand. <laughs> oh, yes, OK. Priorities, priorities. Um, well, I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating book. I'm just wondering... Well, what do you do next? I mean, what are you up to now? Have you got any other projects or are you still working on... I mean, this has only just come out a month or two back, hasn't it? Yeah, no, it hasn't been out long. Um, no, I'm I'm working on a second book, but it's not related to this one uh, at all. Um, well, and it'd be difficult to go through another 18 months like you went through that. Yeah, yeah no, I'm, I'm going to set up a football team on Papua New Guinea now. <laughs> I think they already have one, but well, you'll be able to find an island somewhere. If I poke around enough, maybe Nauru. They, yes. they don't have a team currently, but okay. no, I, it's a very different book, and um, uh, and yeah, I, I think this has taken up quite a lot of my life, so um, it's very hard to almost kind of come back down now and not see myself as related to Pompeii in some way. It'll be some time before I can actually kind of step away from it. I think. But and and have you shaken off the desire to be a football player? I have. Yeah, I I haven't hate the game now. I don't, <laughs> I don't, don't hate the game, but but certainly haven't played it or or watched it since I came back really no, I mean occasional games on TV but um, yeah I've, I've managed to shake this uh, this addiction to football and it's kind of opened my life up to a lot of things that I thought of as less interesting than football 
Including a girlfriend that you left behind for a few months. <laughs> including my girlfriend. Okay. Well, well that's brilliant. I, I thoroughly enjoyed the book. And, uh, you know, as I said, I, I, I think that the statue can't be too, too... I don't think many people would visit it because it's a little bit too far away. But uh, you did a good job and thank you very much for coming in. No, thank you. And that was Paul Watson, the author of the terrific book Up Pompeii, a quest to reclaim the soul of football by leading the world's ultimate underdogs to glory. After this guest spot on New Books in Sports, I'm heading back to my usual place as host of the New Books Network's Africa and Europe channels, where you can hear plenty more of my interviews, including one on African soccer called Africa United by Steve Bloomfield. This is Nicholas Walton wishing you a very good day from here in London. <laughs>